how your victory level is determined by those things which you allow to define you. You know, when we ask who you are, what defines you? What do you allow to say who you are? Many people, you know, they let their occupation define them. I'm a fireman. I am a policeman. I am whatever. But how, how many of you know that if you define yourself by your occupation, then you, you're, you're defining yourself by something that is subject to change? Did you know that most people change occupations at least four times in their life or careers? Some people, many more. Very few are like me, start out doing one thing and stay with it all the way through. And, uh, uh, and not, neither one is wrong, but you don't want that to define you because it is subject to change. Some people, they define themselves by their economic status. You know, I'm, upper, I'm, I'm a rich person, or I'm upper middle class, or I'm middle class, or I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm poor. You know, uh, my dad was bound by that, by a poor man mentality. His image of himself was th that of a poor man. He grew up during the Depression. He had to uh, uh, fight for cotton-picking jobs. <laughs> he had to ride the railroad train all the way out to California to pick oranges and, and fruit in California, and he had to fight the Mexicans for the job, and he had to fight the blacks for the job, and he, he had to scrap and fight all the way through. And uh, the best job he had from the time he was a young boy working all the way up through the time he was 30 years old, he finally got a good job in the U.S. Army in World War II <laughs> when he had to go fight. And so when he came out, he had this idea, you know, that I'm a poor man. And he said things like, you know, poor folks have poor ways. We can't afford that. Who do you think you are? And he allowed, he allowed his economic status to define who he was. And it, and it restricted him. He was not able to live in the victory, the level of victory that God wanted him to live in. And he had opportunities, but he would pass them by because he didn't think he could handle it. And, and so uh, the rich man may not always be rich. The poor man might not always be poor. And the middle class man might go up or down. So you don't want to define yourself by how much money you have. That is very subject to change. Amen? And uh, <clears throat> then there are a lot of people who define themselves by, with, by their good looks. That's a big mistake because good looks have a way of slipping away Real <laughs> with time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was showing a, talking to uh, Ruth about one of my cousins. And when she was a teenager, she was a knockout. She was, she was a, a gorgeous, beautiful blonde. But now she's in her 70s and she looks like, well, she probably won't ever hear this. Um, <laughs> She she looks like a hag. I'm telling you, she's the years have not been kind to her, and a lot of that's due to the lifestyle she chose. But a lot of people, you know, they 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 are good looking, 
And so everything they do is based upon their 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 idea of their looks. And so they're obsessed with it. And when the looks start to fade, then they start spending all kinds of money to uh, slow down the process, even to the point that sometimes they look ridiculous, like these actors that have Botox and what have you. And, you know, they got, they got lips out there like saucers. And, uh, you know... Well, and they, and it's and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to look that way, or maybe they get their skin stretched so tight that everybody starts laughing about how you know they look like the Joker in the Batman movie, with that permanent smile, you know, and uh, but they define themselves by how they look. Looks don't looks change. I look different than I did when I was twenty. In some ways, I think I look better. In other ways, you know, the, I don't look as youthful, but, you know, you might as well accept what it, what is, right? But don't be defined by it. A lot of folks are defined by their race. And you, we got whole people groups that, that their, their race is the basis for every decision and everything they do. And uh, that's unfortunate. Because sometimes, if you let your if you let your race, oh by the way, that's the misnomer. There's only one race. It's called the human race. But your ethnic your ethnic group, your you know, if you let that define who you are, then you're going to be bound to the sins of the fathers. I was kind of joking with uh, Maxine Brochu uh, over the weekend because it, it was like. She blamed everything on being Italian. And I said, I finally asked her, I said, Maxine, are all Italians like you? And she refused to answer that for some reason. And, uh, but it, it was like everything, yeah, especially, especially any negative things about her personality or whatever, she'd blame it on being Italian. And then any any uh, and then of course Chris he's French so any negative thing in his he'd blame it on being French. But you don't want to be defined by your by your ethnic origin. Uh, I would be real confused because I'm a Heinz fifty seven mutt, and uh, you know I have I have uh, Native American blood in me. I have Irish blood, Swedish blood, English blood, and Blood that, you know, when I asked the relatives, you know, about our family tree, they would had to whisper. I never quite heard. So who knows what was in the wood pile, you know. And, and so, you know, that's fortunate for me because I, I, I don't have to be defined by my origins because I don't know where I'm from. I'm a mixture. But there are people that, you know, they, they, they're, they're German, so therefore they justify their personality by just they let that define who they are and uh, and they always identify with the negative aspects of their heritage and that's unfortunate uh, the bible tells us that if any man be in christ he is a new creature and the bible says that we are partakers of the divine nature so to be in christ redefines who we are and all of these things that people use to 
to uh, or allow to define themselves really confine them and restrict them from God's best for their life. Their education, you know, some folks. Um, I had a guy who was coming to our church years ago in another city. He was a college professor and a very bright guy and, and a nice guy. And, uh, you know, I loved him and his family. And they were coming to our church. And one day he came to me and he said, Pastor, we're going to leave the church and we're going to go down the road to this other church. And I said, Why? And he said, we just want to be among our own kind, you know, the educated. And yet that guy, some of the biggest foolish things you ever heard would come out of his mouth. But he was defining himself. But how many of you know, you can always find somebody more educated. You can always find somebody more smart than you. More smarter. Mas smarter. Mas inteligente. Amen. You can always find somebody that can outdo you in, in uh, education. And, and people let their marital status define who they are. How many of you know that can change? And I went through this. I, I went through the, a period where, where I didn't know who I was. When my, my wife died, that I'd been married to since I was 19 years old, and she passed away, all of a sudden... I didn't know who I was because because I was the I was Ronnie and Norma or Norma and Ronnie. Never saw myself or identified myself uh, as as a whole person. You understand what I'm saying? But your marital status can change. People die. People get divorced, and and it's uh, and if your identity is all wrapped in uh, uh, being married then you can lose yourself if something happens in that relationship. And what I had to do, I had, I had to find out who I am just solo. Who, who is this guy I'm looking at in the mirror? I didn't know him. Isn't that sad? You can live 50 years and never know who you are? Well, we need to find out who we are uh, in God. Amen? And so, uh, your physical ability... I remember uh, on my dad's 50th birthday, he took me out in the backyard. This is on his 50th birthday. He took me out in the backyard. He jumped up on the swing set, and he did 50 chins with his right hand, and he did 50 chins with his left hand, and he did 50 chins with both hands. And he jumped down on the ground, and he said, when you're 50 years old, how many chins will you be able to do? Well... When I was 50 years old, I couldn't even get up to the bar, you know. But, you know, my dad was very proud of his strength and of his physical ability. But by the time he was 59, his strength broke, his health broke, and he became very weak and very, very sickly and, uh, until he died at the age of 74. So even, even your physical abilities are subject to change. How many of y'all realize all things change? Everything. And so you don't want anything defining who you are that is going to change. If you, if you do, you're in for a roller coaster ride, you're in for disappointment, and you're in for uh, some defeat in your life. You don't want, you know, how much money you have in your 
401k to define who you are. Because it could, it could disappear tomorrow. It has for some people already. And so you, you, you want to have your identification needs to be on, uh, based upon something that does never change. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, look in Hebrews 6. And I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible. And I'm going to read very carefully and deliberately. We're going to look at ten verses here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. And I want you to listen carefully to the Amplified. For God is not unrighteous to forget or overlook your labor and the love which you have shown for His namesake in ministering to the needs of the saints, his own consecrated people, as you still do. Now, he says here, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. All right, God doesn't forget. But we do strongly and earnestly desire for each of you to show the same diligence and sincerity all the way through in realizing and enjoying the full assurance and development of your hope until the end. Now, we're talking about overwhelming victory. And Paul is talking about you having overwhelming or complete total assurance concerning your standing with God. Verse 12, In order that you may not grow disinterested and become spiritual sluggards, But imitators, behaving as do those who through faith by their leaning of the entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness, and by practice of patient endurance and waiting are now inheriting the promises. God has an inheritance for us. We heard about that over the weekend and God wants us to inherit the promises, all of them. But notice his definition of faith. Uh, I want you to see this. This is in parentheses in the Amplified Bible. And this is the definition of faith. Leaning of the entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness. Let me read it one more time. Faith, according to the Amplified Bible, is the leaning of the entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness. You see, for victory, for overwhelming victory, you need to learn to relate everything concerning you to Jesus and what He's accomplished for you. For, verse 13, For when God made His promise to Abraham, He swore by Himself since He had no one greater by whom to swear, saying, In blessing I certainly will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. See, God made promises to Abraham. God promised to bless him, and God promised to multiply him. And so it was that he, Abraham, 
having waited long and endured patiently, realized and obtained in the birth of Isaac as a pledge of what was to come, what God had promised him. See, Abraham realized and obtained through Isaac what God had promised him. Men, indeed, swear by a greater than themselves, and with them in all disputes the oath taken for confirmation is final. It ends, it ends strife. Accordingly, God also, in his desire to show more convincingly and beyond doubt to those who were to inherit the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose and plan intervened and mediated with an oath. God swore an oath to Abraham. And do you remember uh, what took place when God swore that oath to Abraham? You remember there was a sacrifice, a huge sacrifice, several animals. A ditch was dug, and the animals were split in half, and they were laid on either side of the ditch, and the blood ran down into the ditch until it formed a, a, a river of blood. And then God walked down the ditch as a pillar of fire and consumed the blood and the, and the flesh of those animals that were sacrificed. And that's how God's uh, promise or his, his oath to Abraham was sealed. It was sealed in blood. Now verse 19 says, Now we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It cannot slip and it cannot break down under whoever steps out upon it. A hope that reaches farther and enters into the very certainty of the presence within the veil, where Jesus has entered in for us in advance, a forerunner having become a high priest forever after the order with the rank of Melchizedek. I skipped a verse. I need to go back to verse 18. This was so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God ever to prove false or deceive us. We who have fled to him for refuge might have mighty indwelling strength and strong encouragement to grasp and hold fast the hope appointed for us and set before us. Two unchangeable things. You might want to underline that. The King James says the two immutable things. Immutable. Immutable means unchangeable. They cannot be changed. Now, if you're going to identify yourself with something, identify yourself with these two things that cannot change. And we're going to talk about both of them. His promise and his oath. These are two things that will not change. Well, the oath we find in Hebrews 9:13 through 15 the oath is that covenant with God that is sealed by the blood of Jesus. The oath is represented by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9:13 says for if the mere sprinkling of unholy and defiled persons 
with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a burnt heifer is sufficient for the purification of the body, how much more surely shall the blood of Christ, who by virtue of his eternal spirit, that means his own pre-existent divine personality, has offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the ever-living God. Christ the Messiah is therefore the negotiator and mediator of an entirely new agreement, testament, or covenant, so that those who are called and offered, it may receive the fulfillment of the promised everlasting inheritance. Since a death has taken place, which rescues and delivers and redeems them from the transgressions committed under the old first agreement. So he's talking about a new, a new agreement, a new covenant that's sealed in the blood of Jesus. That new covenant becomes God's oath. And God swore the oath and sealed it in the blood of his own son. One of the most powerful things you can ever realize and understand as a Christian is that you have a covenant with God that's sealed in the blood of His own Son. It is unbreakable. And you need to identify yourself in that covenant. You need to begin to view life through that covenant, which is simply everything is by the blood. Everything is in the blood. Everything is through the blood. And the blood of Jesus becomes one of those, one of those uh, unmutable, immutable things, one of those unchangeable things in your life that identifies who you are. See, I'm not what I was before the blood was applied. I am what I am after the blood is applied. That's who I am. I might have been a pretty cool guy before the blood was applied, but that guy, according to the Scripture, that guy is dead. The old man is dead. No matter where he came from, no matter what his standing in life, no matter how much money he had, no matter how much education he had, no matter how much sin he had, no matter where he was headed, he's dead. And the blood of Jesus separates you from that person. You are no longer that person. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. It's significant that Paul used the word creation. He didn't say, if any man be in Christ, he's made over. Didn't use the word made. He used the word create. The word create means something that did not exist before. The blood of Jesus has effectively separated us from the person we used to be. Now, we may still have the same name, same social security number, same fingerprints. You know, there's some things that stay the same, but they are outward. What's changed is who we are on the inside. And we need to see ourselves in that light if we're going to walk in the victory that God has for us. All right, the second one there is the promise. God's own word. God's word you know, God promised Abraham. God said something to him and gave his word. Turn to Romans 4. 
Romans 4.16. It's a key to you living in a, in, a, in a state of victory regardless of what's going on in your life because you're not basing who you are on what's going on in your life. You're basing who you are on the blood of Jesus and on the Word of God. All right? So your identity does not change. Who you are remains the same in good times and bad, in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty. No matter what is thrown at you in life, a few wrinkles and gray hairs, does not change your identity because of the blood of Jesus and the Word of God. Well, in Romans chapter 4, Romans 4 is talking about Abraham. And uh, verse 16, Turn, look down to verse 16. And I'm still reading from the Amplified. Therefore, inheriting the promise is the outcome of faith and depends entirely on faith in order that it might be given as an act of grace, God's unmerited favor, to make it stable and valid and guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants, not only to the devotees and adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is thus the father of us all. Did you hear that? Inheriting the promise is the outcome of, of faith and it depends entirely on faith in order that it might be given as an act of God's grace to make it stable everybody say stable and valid and guaranteed to all his descendants to everyone not only to those who are under the law but those who share the faith of Abraham the next verse as it is written I have made you the father of many nations. He was appointed our father, Abraham was, in the sight of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and speaks of the non-existent things that he has foretold and promised as if they already existed. For Abraham, human reason for hope being gone, hoped in faith that he should become the father of many nations as he had been promised. So numberless shall your descendants be. So God gave Abraham a promise. God gave Abraham his word. And Abraham, even though he had no hope of having a natural son with Sarah, Even though he was already nearly a hundred years old, he paid no attention to that, and he focused everything on the promise that God gave him. God's word is God's bond. God's word is God's promise. Why? God cannot lie, and he cannot deceive. He is the truth. All right. So when God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sea by the shore and as the stars in the heavens, and Abraham being nearly a hundred years old and 
Sarah being, you know, way past childbearing age, he did not consider his own flesh. He did not identify himself by his circumstances. He trusted the Word of God. So we have a blood covenant, and then we have a God who cannot lie giving a promise. So we have the blood, and we have the promise. Two things that cannot change. Because of whose blood it is, and because of whose word it is. Amen. God cannot lie. God will not change. He said, I am God. I do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews um, What's the what's the address? Thirteen eight. Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am God, I do not change. So the blood and the promise, the blood and the word of God are two things that do not change. You can you can put your identity there. Do you see that? I am what the blood of Jesus says I am. I am who the blood of Jesus says I am. And I can do what the Word of God says I can do. And I can have what the Word of God says I can have. My life is not built on the sand. It's built on doing the Word of God. Believing and trusting in the promise of God. Do you see that? So it doesn't matter what's happened and gone on before, what God says and promises to you that it's sealed in His blood, that's who you are. That's what you can do. That's what you can have. How many of you believe that? So Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered the utter impotence of his own body which was as good as dead because he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's deadened womb. No unbelief or distrust made him waver or doubtingly question concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong and was empowered by faith as he gave praise and glory to God. You see, Abraham didn't just believe God, but he praised God for what God had promised. Amen. Amen. You, you know, we need to get beyond the hoping stage, the quiet, silent, hoping against hope, into the praise stage where whatever God has promised to us, we know God is good for it, and we begin to praise Him now. That's faith. Faith is praising God for what He promised and what Jesus bought with His own blood. So, you know, we need to, we need to begin to examine the Scriptures for what the blood purchased. For what the blood did for you. And then we need to examine the scriptures for what God's promised in His Word. Because whatever God gave His Word on, God will do. But you've got to believe Him. Amen. Abraham had his part to play. Abraham didn't do a whole lot. You know, God's the one who brought the miracle about. Uh, Abraham just believed, but he didn't just sit there quietly believing. He began to give praise and glory to God. 
because he was fully satisfied and assured that God was able and mighty to keep his word and to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was credited to him as righteousness or right standing with God. You see, when we begin to base everything in our life around the blood and the word, we're going to live in an, on a level of victory and possessing the promises that most people never attain to because they don't ever believe. Now, it's amazing how many Christians can trust in the Lord for salvation but can't, can't take His word any further than that. But the same God that promised to save you when you repent of your sin and call on the name of Jesus is the same God that has made many other wonderful and precious promises and swore an oath by them in the blood of His Son. God's good for it. He's not a man that He should lie. Neither is He the Son of Man that He should change His mind. Amen? What God has said He would do, He will do. You can bank on it. And we need, to get that, we need to get that settled in our heart and in our faith that if God said it, I can bank on it. Well, what about all those times I asked God to do something and He didn't do it? Well, you need to quit slandering God and calling God a liar and repent of that and begin to operate in true faith. See, a lot of times people don't, they ask God for something, but they don't really believe He's going to do it. I've prayed, I've prayed for people many times at the altar, you know, to, to be healed in their body, and they take three steps and tell somebody they didn't get a healing. You get what you say. <laughs> Amen? Well, I didn't feel any different. Who said you had to feel any different to be healed? Healing takes place first in your faith. And it begins to manifest outwardly into your, to your body, into your need. So feel, healing has got to come first to your faith. You've got to, begin, you've got to believe. It. Any of the promises of God, if you're going to receive a promise of God, you've got to believe in it and, and put your faith on it first. And then begin to identify yourself as a recipient of the promise. I'll illustrate that in a little bit. But it's important for us to realize what, that our faith, is going to, our faith is going to come out of our mouth. Glorifying God, praising God, thanking God. That's what faith will do. People that will not give God glory and praise Him and, and thank Him in advance of the physical manifestation are not they're not operating by faith look at abraham what did he start doing immediately he started going around you know god changed his name from abram to abraham abraham means father of multitudes so abraham immediately began to refer to himself not as abram but as abraham people would come up to him uh, uh, sir, what is your name? My name is Father of Multitudes. How many sons do you have? My name is Abraham, Father of Multitudes. <laughs> he, would, he began to identify himself according to the promise. 
to the point of changing his name. God changed it, but he had to claim it. And he had to go out and, and, and reveal himself as father of multitudes to whoever asked him his name. Most people, you know, they want to see it before they confess it. But the principle is you've got, you've got to come into agreement with God's promise and begin to identify yourself as having received that promise. Jesus said, if you shall ask, you know, if you ask anything in my name, you shall receive it. Amen? So uh, if you ask something in his name, and you believe that you receive it, you're going to act different. You're going to begin to glorify God and rejoice in, in, in the promise being received. Way before it ever shows up. I heard about a lady one time that attended a, a, a revival meeting in her church. And she had a cancer on her face. And it was a large cancer and it protruded out of her face and it was just rotting flesh and it stunk like it was unbelievable how the stench of that cancer on her face and of course she was greatly affected by it you know her social life changed and you know her health changed and her wealth changed and and uh, and yet she was desperate to get healed so she came to this revival meeting and came forward and the evangelist, who happened to be Jimmy Swaggart, the evangelist laid hands on her and prayed for, for her to be healed. And she started rejoicing, jumping around, dancing, praising God, waving her arms. And, and everybody says, well, she's not healed. I can still see that cancer. I can still smell it. But she's praising God and glorifying God. And she went home. The next service, after the revival was over, the next service, she came back to church. And when she had an opportunity, she stood up and she said, I just want to thank the Lord for it, that he healed me. I, I had cancer. I, uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was horrible. And I just want to thank you. I just want to thank God. And I'm going to stand here and give God the glory for healing me. And all the time, she still got this thing on her face. And people are, you know, they kind of tolerate it. But Sunday after Sunday... After Sunday, every time she came to church, she got up and testified and praised God and gave God glory and rejoiced that he had healed her of that cancer. To the point that the deacons called the pastor in and said, Pastor, you got to do something about sister so-and-so. She is humiliating us. She is obviously not healed. She's deluded. And you got to do something about her. She's embarrassing us. So the pastor says, okay, I'll take care of it. And so he uh, started, got in his car and started over to her house on the way to his house. He's praying, <coughs> God, please give me strength. <coughs> God, please help me to know how to deal with this. And the Lord spoke to him in the car and said, leave her alone. So he did. <coughs> Weeks went by. Week after week went by. Months went by. The deacon started telling the pastor, if you don't do something about it, we're going to fire you. Deacons put a lot, they can put a lot of pressure on a pastor. And uh, negative pressure. 
But he stood his ground because he had heard the voice of God and he was afraid of God. He was afraid of God. And so a whole year passed. Every time that woman came to church, she went through that routine. And then on the anniversary of when she was prayed for, she was getting ready for church, fixing her hair, brushing her teeth, looking in the mirror, and that thing still on her face. And she said, Lord, I know you healed me a year ago. How long are you going to let this thing stay on my face? And as soon as she said that, it slid off of her face into the sink. And underneath was baby skin. Smooth, smooth, pure, healed skin. And so she finishes getting ready, and she comes to church. And the greeters introduced themselves to her and gave her a visitor card. Because they didn't recognize her. But she had a, a new identity. And so during the service, they gave an opportunity for testimonies. And this lady stood up and gave the same testimony she had been given every time she came to church. And everybody realized who it was. And they were all amazed. But you see, what happened was when that lady was first prayed for, she identified with the promise. She identified with the Word of God, and she knew God would not lie and would not disappoint her, and she began to praise God without even seeing the results. A whole year went by, and she did not change her identity based upon what other people said. She had, that's what I mean by identifying yourself with the promise. Amen. Because Jesus' blood is sealed. It, God has sealed that promise with an oath. The blood of Jesus has been poured out. And so your faith will be credited to you as righteousness, just like it was to Abraham. Righteousness is right standing with God. You can walk in right standing with God by faith in what He said, what He promised. Amen. Uh, another example I want to share with you about how people identify with uh, the wrong things. Several years ago, uh, I was 23 years old, and I went to pastor my second church. And uh, it was a church of about 55 people, and uh, they met in a pretty dilapidated-looking building. And, uh, but God sent me there. And uh, my father-in-law and, and mother-in-law helped us move down there. We moved, it's four, it was 400 miles from where we moved from to our new house. And we arrived with our U-Haul truck and our, you know, every, you know, driving our cars behind and all that. And we backed the U-Haul truck up into the parsonage. And just as soon as we opened the door to start unloading, it started pouring down rain. And we just, you know, just kept unloading anyway because we had to get our stuff out of there. And while we're unloading, this man, one of the members of the church, one of the deacons, comes up and, and uh, gets out of his car and runs and gets under the porch and has his hands in his pocket, didn't offer to help us or anything, 
But uh, my father-in-law comes around the corner, and this guy walks up to him and says, Hello, my name is Simpkins. I'm a diabetic. And my father-in-law said, My name is Glenn Pratt. I'm a farmer. And he kind of looked at me like, That was weird. Well, I didn't think anything about it, but uh, uh, one day I was uh, in church, you know, and I asked, uh, I noticed that there were several people there that were diabetics. And I said, how many of you uh, are suffering from diabetes? And one-fourth of the church raised their hand. And I, I was just blowed away. And uh, that man and his wife and his 10-year-old son were, were diabetics. And then there were diabetics everywhere. And I, so I, I was kind of shocked about it and... So I went home and prayed, Lord, what do I do about this? We, we got way too much diabetes in this church. What are, what are we going to do about this? And the Lord said, preach the word. So I started preaching on our healing God. Now I'm 23 years old. How many of you know that I still preach that same message? And, uh, and so I started preaching on healing, divine healing, what Jesus paid for, how He suffered at the whipping post, how He bore all our sicknesses and diseases that we might be healed. And I'm preaching on this, and I thought I preached a pretty good sermon. I looked out there, and everybody was mad at me. And uh, I was trying to be as loving and as positive and as kind as I could be, but uh, uh, the reason they were mad at me is their identities were tied up in that disease. They saw themselves as diabetic. That's who I am. I'm a diabetic. And so, you know, they got mad at me. Well, the next Saturday, I'm in my office praying and studying, trying to get a sermon. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to preach about tomorrow? And he said, healing. So the next Sunday, I preached on healing. And that went on for six solid months. To the point that deacons were calling me and saying, don't you know any other subject? Don't you have anything else to preach? I mean, this is my first six months there as, their, as the pastor of the church. But by the end of that six months, every diabetic in the church was healed, except who refused to give up his identity. And he went on and died of that disease. His wife eventually died of that disease. She got healed, but... Um, he ridiculed her and berated her to the point that she took the disease back. Great loving husband he was. But anyway, um, the, son, his, the son got healed of type 1 diabetes, got healed of it, and to my knowledge, to this day, he's still healed. So, you know, and everybody, nobody else went back into it, but they all got healed except that one family whose identity was so wrapped up in that disease that they refused to give it up and even got mad at me for suggesting that God didn't want them to be diabetics. Now, my wife, my first wife, when she was young, she, was, she had problems with allergies and she, she was, had problems with asthma. She would have asthma so bad that she would black out and they'd have to rush her to the hospital. And by the time I came along, you know, uh, you know, one of our first dates was a church hayride, and I took her on this hayride, 
and you know she gets on this hay wagon with all this hay and started these big whelps started coming up all over her body and she started having problems breathing and I had to take her back home to her mama <laughs> uh, and uh, because she was she was you know she needed the inhaler she needed to take a shower and get all that hay dust off of her and and it was I mean and it really put a you know cramp on our our dating style and anytime we ventured outdoors, you know, I would wind up having to take her home or to the hospital. But I loved her so much, I married her anyway, in spite of her problems. And, uh, and so, you know, we wound up a couple years later pastoring a church. And, uh, and in, this, in this church, I'm preaching on healing. And my wife was constantly under attack by this asthma in retaliation for what I was preaching. And, and uh, there were a couple of times in those two years that we were in that church that uh, I had to take her to the hospital. And I didn't have any money, and we had no insurance. And so, you know, to get her in the hospital, I'd have to write a check. One of those rubber kind just to get them to admit her into the hospital. And then while she's in, you know, they'd give her one of those shots and she'd be just fine laying up there in the hospital eating jello. And I'd be out knocking on doors and going to bank after bank and begging people to loan me the money so I could get the money in there before the hospital cashed my check. And it was horrible. Well, Oh, and by the way, I had a really bad cold. I was sicker than she was. I, was. I had such a bad cold, they wouldn't even let me visit her in the hospital. And so she's laying up there in the hospital bed just feeling fine, knowing what I'm going through. And she felt about that big. She had her Bible laying on her little stand there, and she was so ashamed she, she wouldn't even look at her Bible. She knew the situation was not right. And yet, she had been identified so much with that asthma and those allergies that her mother and family, her sister and brothers and mother and dad, just were constantly hovering over her, making sure she didn't do anything or get anything that would make her sick. They accepted that identity. Her identity was based upon a disease. Well, she finally decided she didn't want it no more. And so she says, I'm going to go into the bathroom, and I don't want you to follow me. Matter of fact, I'm going to lock the door. And no matter what you hear, don't come in. Okay. So, you know, so I'm stand I park myself outside the door. I'm going to hear what's going on. And she started cursing asthma and allergies I mean I never heard anybody talk that mean to anything and she was she says I am fed up I have had it with you you are not from God I reject you and she started pleading the blood over herself and quoting the promises now I'm talking about a 21 year old girl and she she started I mean she was I was so glad she wasn't talking to me. 
And she went on and 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 telling it where to go. I mean, she was done with that. That's not who I am, she said. I'm a child of God. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm a born-again person. I'm full of the Holy Ghost. I have God as my Father. And God says, by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed. So you get out. And it left and never came back. Never came back. She died, but she didn't die from asthma. And God was instrumental in using her to get a lot of asthmatics free. But you would be amazed, people, how many times she would testify of God delivering her from asthma and people would get offended because she dared to insinuate they might have a devil problem. Because she called it a devil. Oh, by the way, I've prayed for people who had asthma and I saw the devil. You know what, a, you know what an asthma devil looks like? You remember Captain Caveman? Remember the remember the the cartoon Captain Caveman? Uh, you remember cousin It on the uh, Adams family? J- it, it was just it was just co- just hair, just hair, and and you couldn't even see its eyes, except this hair wasn't as clean as cousin It's hair. It was all matted and nasty, and it, and and it was it was about this tall, and it was sitting on a guy's shoulder. And I looked at that, I looked at the guy, and I looked at that. I said, you see that? No, I don't see anything. And so I went like this, in the name of Jesus, and I knocked that thing right off that guy's shoulder. And he was healed. But there were a lot of people over the years that got offended at her or me for insinuating that this disease didn't belong. And, and what it, the reason for that was their identity was all wrapped up in it. Now, I know there might be people here that suffer with allergies or asthmas. There might be people here. I know there are people here that are fighting against diabetes. There's, there's no condemnation in that. No, there's no condemnation in you fighting a battle. But, but where the victory comes is when you say, I no longer identify myself with that disease. I refuse to call myself a diabetic, an asthmatic, or a... You know, whatever else might be bothering you. I refuse to say I'm broke. I refuse to say I'm poor. I refuse to say I'm broke. It's okay for me to say at the moment, money's coming to me. <laughs> you know, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have give I unto thee. That was not a confession of poverty. It was a confession of power. Amen. Silver and gold was not that man's answer. But see, he saw himself as a beggar, so everybody who came to him was a potential donor. And Peter said, I'm not here to donate. I'm here to deliver. There's a difference. Viva la difference, amen? So how many of you understand what I, the principle I'm sharing with you tonight? Uh, don't identify yourself with things that are subject to change. Disease can be healed. Health can change. It can get worse. It can get better. Don't, don't wrap your identity around those things. I've had people who are on disability 
They're getting a government check for disability. And I'd go to pray for them, and they'd say, don't pray for me. I said, why not? Well, if I get healed, I have to give up my check. I said, yeah, you, you go to work. I don't want to go to work. I'm disabled. I am a disabled person. That was their identity. Years ago when I was just a boy, a friend, my Sunday school teacher was named Roy Page. Roy Page was a carpenter. He was a good carpenter. He was one of the best carpenters in the whole city. And one day he was working on a, uh, an elevator shaft in a, in a tall building. And while he's working on the elevator shaft, the elevator fell on him, crushed his hip bone to powder, and almost killed him. They took him to the hospital, and they said, you won't live through the night. Well, he lived through the night. They said, well, you won't live through the day. Well, he lived through the day. We're praying for him. The whole church is praying for him. We loved Roy. And they said, well, you won't make it through the week. Well, he lived through the week. They said, you'll never... You'll never walk again. You'll be, you're going to be confined to a wheelchair. On the, on the seventh day, he needed to go to the bathroom, so he gets up and he goes and he walks to the bathroom and he takes care of business and he comes out and he puts his clothes on and he walks out of there. On crutches. He did walk out on crutches. But he's supposed to be dead. But he was not going to identify himself as a dead man. So this, the next day happened to be ch Sunday. So he comes to church on his crutches. Everybody was shocked to see him out of the hospital. And man, when he walked in, everybody just, I mean, praise just erupted all over the place. And so, you know, the pastor, uh, as was the custom in our church, you know, in our church, the one I grew up in, we prayed for the sick. And so they, our pastor invited people down who needed prayer. Well, Roy goes hobbling down there on his crutches. And I'm a little 9, 10-year-old boy. He's my Sunday school teacher. He's my hero. I love him. And, and I'm sitting there with my eyes peeled to see what happened. And the elders, or the deacons, who happened to be my Uncle George and my Uncle Sam and Roy. Those were the three deacons in the church. Well, Roy's being prayed for. Uncle George and Uncle Sam and the pastor are gathered around him, laying hands on him. I'm careening out, my, you know, sticking my head out in the, uh, the aisle, watching to see what was going to happen. And suddenly, those two crutches went flying into the air. And Roy took off running. And George took off running. And Uncle Sam took off running. And the pastor took off running. Next thing you know, the whole church is chasing Roy. And we must have made five or six laps around that church rejoicing because Roy never would identify with that condition. He identified with healing. The same Roy later on had a heart attack and died. His, his wife wouldn't hear of it. And she raised him back from the dead. That's the kind of people I grew up with. But you, you've, you've got to get to the place, people, where you don't let negative things define who you are. You are a child of God. You have a blood covenant. And everything that blood bought and everything God promised is yours. You want to hear some of the, 
some of the promises about the blood. The blood of First John one seven, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So it don't matter. It don't matter how bad you were. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. So your identity should be, I'm clean, not guilty. Amen. The blood of Jesus is powerful. Revelation 12:11 They overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Victory comes to those who believe in the blood and who trust in the word. You are an overcomer if you believe in the blood and trust in the word. Oh man, too many scriptures and I'm out of time. Well, so, let me ask you this question. Uh, last Sunday, Randy Voigt shared a powerful four-minute word. And the question was, how much are you worth? How much are you worth? And the answer is, you're worth the blood of Jesus. God paid for you with the blood of Jesus. My question to you tonight is, who are you? Now that we know how much you're worth, who are you? Are you an asthmatic? Are you a diabetic? Are you an, are you an arthritic? Are you broke? Are you poor? Are you downtrodden? Are you miserable? Who are you? Well, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. That's what the Bible says. I am more than a conqueror through Christ. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. I, I am above only and not beneath. I'm the head and not the tail. Hallelujah. I'm blessed. I'm blessed going in and coming out. I'm blessed in the city. I'm blessed in the country. I'm blessed in the basket. I'm blessed in the store. My family's blessed. The fruit of my body's blessed. My kind are blessed. That's my dog, my cat, my fish, my bird. She's got a 20-year-old bird. Blessed. Blessed bird. Everything that I am, everything that I have, the Bible declares is blessed. My identity is one who is blessed. One who is blessed of God. I say, well, yeah, but how about what happened to you last week? That doesn't matter. That doesn't change who I am. Because who I am is based on something that will never change. On the blood, the oath, and on the promise, the Word of God. Those will never change.